You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Join us today for part two of Christopher Dilworth to understand what the law is and its role in history. Okay, so I hear that cryptocurrency people were targeting a lot of black people and like a lot of I've seen the ads like with Spike Lee and stuff. And recently there's this guy named Singh Bankman Freed who basically (laughs) his company, as far as I can tell, bought a lot of these fake coins that his own company minted. And so it's like, imagine if I were to say, I'm going to sell you one one billionth of my podcast for $1 and then you buy it. And then I'm going to say, hey, my podcast is worth $10 billion, like a billion dollars because you bought one billion billionth of a share of my podcast for $1. Like that's kind of what he did. And he didn't really have a company or whatever. And it's just egregious. But do you have any insight on that? Yeah, I mean, it's just funny because like the same time you got Elizabeth Holmes getting sentenced right and you have these people who are like this would never had a black person would never get away with this but Elizabeth Holmes you know an elite scammer her father was the vice president of Enron right yeah. so she comes from a family of scammers and her father is one of the reasons why she had all these connections and was able to get all this funding he was introducing her to people right um and you have somebody like Hold on. Uh, with Elizabeth Holmes, just for people who may not be familiar, she had this company called Theranos, which was supposed to do some high tech blood testing. But it was based on a technology that was like totally science fiction that couldn't work with the current level of like development we have. So it was all like, I don't know, magic beans. Nothing worked. But she went on and, for example, like this pregnant woman, like took a test with her and thought that she like she could have actually killed a baby and stuff like that. Thank God she didn't. But she gave out like incorrect results for pe- thousands of people's blood tests. There's a lot of other stuff with that, like her deepening her voice, trying to emulate Tim, uh, not Tim Cook, but uh, the guy who founded Apple, um, just all these weird things. But similarly, you know, you have Sig Bankman Freed, whatever his name is, but he, you know, sort of the same thing, right? He was able to fool all of these people, right? And to thinking he's this genius guy, come to find out, you know, this guy was supposed to be in meetings, in Zoom meetings, and he's playing video games while, you know, they're supposedly talking about all this stuff. And you got these DMs that are leaked about how he didn't care about ethics. And I mean, cryptocurrency is just littered with, with, with scams, right? You have, you know, so many of these coins that go to zero or even less than zero. I think uh, this coin, Luna coin was at like, it went from like five bucks to $80 and then it went down to zero and or below zero. And the founder of the coin has been on the run since it happened months ago and they're trying to find the guy, right? And you have that stuff because what people are doing is they're taking advantage of people, right? Who want to make money or want to get rich quick, right? Or, you know, of people's greed or just, or their desperation. Okay, I'm going to play this, uh, just this part because it's really shocking. We start with a company that builds a box. And in practice, this box, they probably dress it up to look like a life-changing, you know, world-altering protocol that's going to, replace all the big banks in 38 days or whatever. (laughs) Maybe for now, actually ignore what it does or pretend it does literally nothing. It's just a box. So what this protocol is, it's called Protocol X. It's a box and you can take a token, you take Ethereum, you can put it in the box and you can take it out of the box. Like you put it in the box and you get like, you know, an IOU for, for having put it in the box and then you can redeem that IOU back out for the token. 
so so far what we've described is the world's dumbest ETF or ADR or something like that. It's a it doesn't do anything, but let you put things in it if you so chose. And then this protocol issues a token. We'll call it whatever X token. And X token promises that anything cool that happens because of this box is gonna ultimately be usable by you know governance vote of holders of the X tokens. They can vote on what to do with any proceeds or other cool things that happen from this box. And of course, so far we haven't exactly given a compelling reason for why there ever would be any proceeds from this box. But I don't know, you know, maybe maybe there will be. So that's sort of where you start. And then you say, all right, well, you got this box and you got X token. And the the box protocol declares or, or maybe votes by on-chain governance or you know something like that, that what they're going to do is they are going to take half of all the X tokens that will offer reminted, maybe two-thirds of them, two-thirds of all offer X tokens, and they're going to give them away for free to everyone who uses the box. So anyone who goes, takes some money, puts in the box, each day they're going to airdrop you know, 1% of the X tokens pro rata amongst everyone who's put money in the box. That's for now what X token does. It, it gets given away to the box people. And now what happens? Well, X token has some market cap, right? It's, it's probably not zero. Well, let's say it's, you know, $20 million market cap and a bunch of arbitrageurs. Anyway, from, from like first principles, it should be zero, but okay. <laughs> Uh, sure. Okay. I, I completely reasonable comment. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't, like that's not quite true, but it's like when you describe it in this totally cynical way, it sounds like it should be zero. But go on. Describe it this way: you might think, for instance, that in like five minutes with an internet connection, you could create such a box and such a token, and that it should reflect like you know, it should be worth like one hundred eighty dollars or something market cap for like that you know that effort that you put into it. In the world that we're in, if you do this, everyone's going to be like, ooh, box token. Maybe it's cool. If you buy a box token, you know, that's going to appear on Twitter and it'll have a $20 million market cap. And, and of course, one thing that you could do is you could like make the float very low and whatever. You know, may, may, maybe there haven't been $20 million that have flowed into it yet. Maybe that's sort of like, is it's, you know, mark to market, fully diluted valuation or something. But I acknowledge that, it, that it's not totally clear that this thing should have market cap. But but empirically, I claim it would have market cap. I agree. <laughs> it, it shouldn't so, have any market cap in theory, but in, but in it practice, does. they right. always do. Okay, That's right. So, And obviously, already we're sort of hiding some of the magic in that, right? Like some of the magic is in like, how did it get that market cap to start with? But, you know, whatever. We're, we're going to move on from that for a second. So, you know, X tokens being given out each day. All these like sophisticated firms are like, huh, that's interesting. Like if the total amount of money in the box is $100 million, then it's going to yield $16 million this year in X tokens being given out for it. That's a 16% return. That's pretty good. We'll put a little bit more in, right? And and, and maybe that, that happens until there are $200 million in the box. So, you know, sophisticated traders and or people on crypto Twitter or, or other sort of similar parties go and, and put $200 million in the box collectively, and they start getting these X tokens for it, right? And now all of a sudden, everyone's like, wow, people just decide to put $200 million in the box. This is a pretty cool box, right? Like, <laughs> this, this is a valuable box, as demonstrated by all the money that people have apparently decided should be in the box. And who are we to say that they're wrong about that? Like, 
you know, this is, I, I mean, boxes can be great. Look, I love boxes as much as the next guy. <laughs> right. And, and so, so what happens now, all of a sudden people are kind of recalibrating like, well, $20 million, that's it. Like that market cap for this box. And it's been like 48 hours and it already has $200 million, including from like sophisticated players in it. They're like, come on, that's too low. Right. Like, and, and they look at these ratios, TVL total value locked in the box you know, as a ratio to market cap of the boxes token and the like 10 X that's insane. One X is the norm. And so then, you know, X token price goes way up and now it's a $130 million market cap token because of, you know, the bullishness of people's usage of the box. And now all of a sudden, of course, the smart money, it's like, Oh wow. Like this thing's now yielding like 60% a year in X tokens. Of course I'll take my 60% yield. Right. So they go, they, they pour another $300 million in the box and you get a cycle and then it goes to infinity and then everyone makes money. I I think of myself as like a fairly cynical person and that was so much more cynical than how I would have described farming. Like you're just like, well, I'm in the Ponzi business and it's pretty good. (laughs) Did any of this require any sort of like economic case? It's just like, other people right. put money in the box, and so I'm going to too. And then it's more valuable, so I'm going to put more money in. And at no point in the cycle did it seem to like describe any sort of like economic purpose. So on the one hand, I think that's a pretty reasonable response. <laughs> he knew. I mean, he knew the whole time. Like, what? I mean, the scam is you know the people who have already accumulated the amount of coins that they want you know, or that they need in order to get rich, they accumulate everything at this, whatever this low price is, right? And then you have all this push and this hype around, you know, cryptocurrency, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have these runs where they go on this incredible run, you know, they they gain, you know, a thousand percent or whatever it might be, right? Is it because somebody inside, like if I hoarded the supply of every Bitcoin, I can like pump and dump to whatever price I want, right? Well, the, so if you have the, if you have an exchange, right, you, you can pump and dump, or if you, I mean, there are coordinated pump and dumps within coins, right? Where like even, I mean, the same thing happens in the stock market, right? Literally, where you have uh, a coordinated pump and dump where you have hedge funds and all these places that will buy media sources and all these things and get, you know, plant news here, plant stuff here to get people to buy in so that they can then dump all of it onto the people who, who started to FOMO in, right? And so now they've essentially it's illegally siphoned the money off from, you know, poor people or whoever it may be, but they siphoned that money off because they essentially, you know, trapped them, right? They 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 got them to jump in because with with the thought of being able to, you know, uh, have some, you know, money in the future or, you know, build up a nest egg, just, you know, some sort of investment, right? Because like, you know, only, only like, you know, what, like 10% of people in America are even in the stock market, right? So then you, you, you talk to people about investments and they might not have the, you know, well, they don't have the knowledge a lot of times that, you know, they need to have in order to start, but then the hedge funds and the banks and everyone, they have all this knowledge. And so they know when people are buying in or whatever it might be. And so they are able to dump their shares at a certain price price or dump these coins at a certain price and you know bitcoin went to 60,000 and now it's you know all the people who now it's down to almost 20,000 or a little less than that it dropped to like 16 right so all the people who sold it up there at 16 there's a lot of people i mean at 60 i mean there's a lot of people who bought it up there and how are they looking now right all the other you know cryptos that have just 
you know, totally dumped and gone down. A lot of that is because, right, you have these campaigns where, you know, people have like, all right, I've got everything that I need. Let's, you know, they want to have this run. I mean, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of it is coordinated. Some of it isn't, but you get people who uh, know that like, I'm, they're going to dump on on people at this you know certain point, right? Because they are they have more information or whatever it might be, and you have exchanges that can see you know what's going on, withdrawals, and all these types of things, and like these exchanges like FTX and these other ones are they get hacked? They have a backdoor, and I think FTX had a backdoor where I guess the rumor is that they were obviously backdooring their own clients and taking their money. And- what does it mean to backdoor? Just for people who are not familiar, which including me. Um, well, essentially, there's a way to um, the the exchange is supposed to essentially be a, a safe that you cannot crack. Right. Uh-huh. And essentially, the back door is a way to get in the safe without cracking it in the traditional way. Ah, it's like, oh, it's like going literally like so. let's say you put your crypto coins inside this hypothetical safe. It's like drilling a hole from the wall and then cr- grabbing the coins from there, right? Exactly. And pulling it out while the safe in the front, it still looks like it's it's closed and it hasn't been cracked. Everything looks good. But meanwhile, you're just pulling out those coins in that hole you, you drilled. So that's what he was doing. Wow. Well, why is that not illegal or why is he not in jail? And why is New York Times still writing puff pieces about him not having enough sleep? <laughs> I really don't know. I'm like, I'm, I've been trying to figure this out because I guess it's essentially wasn't, well, uh, it's essentially uh, at the, at the moment, isn't, uh, well, I guess they're investigating essentially. Okay. They, they don't, they haven't deemed that he's done anything illegal yet. He um, just even confessed to Bloomberg about a year ago to say, saying that he had a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the thing you can do when you have money or you are, I mean, embedded with, you know, uh, politicians and, you know, contributed to their campaigns and all these types of things, right? He's bought, he's bought himself some, I guess, uh, some time. Yeah, because literally New York Times was writing puppy. I'm, I'm like, I was shocked at that puppy. Um, and yesterday he was like appearing in an event with um, Zelensky. Yeah. And like Janet Yellen and all of these terrible people. And it's like, hold on. I mean, it just like tells you how, you know, incestuous the banking and finance and politicians and all of that world is and just how corrupt it is as well. Because in what world could a person who say, you know, just stole something from Walmart, right? They're going to allow him to be on a panel with with anybody? No, they're getting <laughs> you steal a belt and they're going to come and bring a tank to your house and they're going to try to burn it down to get you out. Okay, looks like I did a bit of securities fraud on part one of this interview, but while I'm languishing in a federal penitentiary, our site is still up. So go to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. Need more content? Of course you do. So head over to YouTube or Twitch for Lit with Lennon on Mondays at 12 p.m. Eastern. And tune in on Sundays at 12.30 p.m. Eastern to our call-in show, 100-Year-Old Bonesaw. It is what is to be done. He actually <laughs> interviewed another attorney who was really good. Um, he was telling me about this story where this old lady, again, I did not, I don't know her race. Um, I didn't ask. I, I, I just, and a lot of times I don't know because like I don't, when you're citing cases, it's kind of hard to figure out. 
But basically, she stole, she may have shoplifted something from Walmart for like, I don't know, like 30 bucks. And she was in jail over Christmas for that. And that's, I mean, that's it. That's just how it is. Like, people will get thrown away. And and then um, the amount of time that she was in her pre-trial jail, by the time she actually went in front of the judge, the judge was basically, okay, it had exceeded the amount of time she would have served anyways. And they were like, okay, go, you can leave. I am. Um, I actually was a prosecutor for for six months. Yeah, mostly because I wanted to. I wanted to learn like what that side. Of, I really wanted to just like free people, right? <laughs> so I, I did it for about six months, and I. The reason why I stopped, obviously, I was kept getting in trouble because I was just dismissing cases. Um, literally, I mean, the stuff that I saw, it just really confirmed everything to me that I already thought. Right? I had cases where you know a mom stole some. She had just had a baby. She stole some clothes from Walmart, and I'm like. I'm not putting this woman in jail. I'm dismiss her case, right? She just needs some help, some job, a job, you know, some money to help out, right? Here's a card. Uh, Verizon is hiring at like 18 bucks an hour. You know, here, take that. Go get a job. Dismiss, right? Or I had cases where literally there was, it was racial discrimination. It was um, there was a guy who was sitting outside of a law firm, black kid, and the cops. You know, I was reading the the probable cause affidavit. The cops said in the probable cause affidavit that uh, they were walking by and the kid stared at them with the with a thousand yard stare and i'm like okay this is probably gonna be it's not illegal to stare right and i'm like okay here it comes right and so then they approached him and he's sitting on the windowsill this is like a wednesday at two o'clock in the afternoon right he can sit wherever he wants that's like not illegal also exactly so then they approach him and they ask him they say uh, what's your name and he said his name was Armani, but then, then the PC said his name was he said his name was Jumanji, right? And like he was like getting smart with them or something. So then they like I guess this like made them sort of you know puff out their chest. And so then they started to question him, and then they said they were going to arrest him. And they told him to put his hands behind his back. And he's like, no, I didn't do anything. Why are you trying to arrest me? And so um, they like get him on the ground, arrest him, and they charge him with felony resisting because he wouldn't get down on the ground and, and was saying he didn't do anything. Why are you trying to arrest me? Leave me alone. They they charged him with a felony resisting. That was it. That was the only thing they charged him with. No, no other crime. Well, to me, the resisting arrest is such a BS charge if you don't have another accompanying charge. Well, yeah, and, and the thing is that they created the situation. They created the situation. He didn't do anything. They created the situation by going up to him, uh, harassing him, and then arresting him and him, you know, being puzzled at why he's being arrested for not doing anything. That's a pretty natural, um, you know, instinctual thing for anyone to do. If they're being arrested and haven't done anything. So, yeah, and the guy had, I mean, he had no criminal record. And like, why would, why are you trying to give a, you know, trying to give a black man a felony? out of nowhere trying to ruin his life and he didn't do anything so i dismissed it now there, there were plenty of cases like this that i dismissed and the police would always get mad because prosecutors offices and police departments are incestuous they're all very very like connected with each other even you have some of the prosecutors that is, explains why you can't get a single conviction even when you kill somebody on film and like the thing is, like you have prosecutors who are dating cops, cops who are lying on the stand, and they blatantly lying on the stand. I mean, this stuff happens; and it's happening everywhere in all of the prosecutors' offices around the country. And the, the and so then, 
<laughs> I was like, all right, now I got to go join the other side because now I got to fight against this stuff. I want to be a public defender. Um, and that's, you know, so that's what I was going to do. But then, you know, I was like, I just, I was like, I'm, I'm kind of done with the, with the legal world uh, how it is. It's just not, you can fight for things, right. In specific instances, like if you're working for like the, the innocence project and things like that, like those are very great and, and, and noble outfits, but your everyday sort of legal job just isn't, isn't going to allow you to do that if that's something that you're, you know, hoping for. And some of us, that's what we want, you know, fighting against the, the, the system of injustice and, you know, fighting for people and doing these things. So that's why, you know, either you do it inside of work or you have to find a way to do it outside of work, like joining, you know, an organization or something like that. Well, like I think people have the law backwards because the law is basically an expression of society as in, for example, you cannot use the law to fight it because the law is actually ex post facto expression of society, in my opinion. Right. You can't, you can't, like, it's, it's sort of an oxymoron, right? You can't fight fire with fire, right? You can't fight against the thing that you want to take down with the thing that holds it up. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you in that because um, all in the, the, I mean, our courts, the system of injustice, our courts, all of it is very, very right wing. And then whenever you have a decision that doesn't um, sort of adhere to that, they say, oh, that's, you know, judicial activism. But like judicial activism is literally happening every day with reactionary judges who... I mean, even like separate but equal was made up out of whole cloth. There's no, there's nothing in the Constitution. What is separate but equal? Uh, separate but equal is the idea. It's basically segregation, right? It's the idea that, well, it's okay for whites and blacks to be separated as long as black people have a. Oh, Plessy versus Ferguson, right? Right, right. Have a equal institution, right? So, like, I mean, there's so many like cases, like um, the what was the Board of Regents case where the black woman law student wanted to go to law school in like Oklahoma or something, and they wouldn't let her in because she was black, and then but then she sued them because they didn't have like um like a, a, a equal facility, comparable facility, separate but equal doctrine. So then, like. And I think actually this was like a third third grade Marshall case, right? And I think they end up allowing her to go to law school uh, or created like her own law school. Uh, but then she had to have like a she had to sit in a, a chair that was labeled like colored and had to have like barriers around her in in the classes. And I mean, That's just insane. Yeah, like just it, just incredibly ridiculous things, um, and like yeah, she did like eating a separate plate. I mean, all this, all that kind of stuff, and like that's like you know that's like the law. Like it was okay for that to happen. Like you know, the Supreme Court said okay, as long as they have separate but equal. And then, but the thing is that it was all made up. Like there's no justification. There's no. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that separate but equal is something that you know is constitutional. But because that's what they wanted that's the result they wanted. Well, they reverse engineered it or just made it up out of the whole cloth, like so much of Supreme Court jurisprudences. I, I mean, that feels like everything in the Supreme Court, to be honest, like Bush versus Gore in 2000. They just were basically like, we're just going to say that it's more important to like follow some random deadline in the state of Florida than count all the votes. But don't use this as precedent. And then, and, and um, yeah, this isn't precedent. This is just for this time is kind of what they said, right? Yeah, they can 
they just, I mean, <laughs> just make stuff up to fit. I mean, and, and the thing is, Al Gore had a chance to fight that. He had, a, he just, he didn't fight it. He was like, all right, cool, that's fine. And he was just like, all right, I'm cool with taking the L. Like, no, oh, really? Like, wow. He had a chance to fight against it to um, appeal the decision. And I guess his lawyers and they they talked about and just allowed the Supreme Court to just go ahead with the decision. I, it, I can't remember all the specifics to it, but they didn't exhaust basically every option that they had. They just sort of just laid down their sword and, 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 and just took it on the chin. Oh, my God. That's just so infuriating because what happened with like 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, they plunged Afghanistan. They destroyed it. Like Iraq was totally destroyed. They had to turn graveyards into schools, into graveyards. And even today, they're not spending what they used to spend under Saddam Hussein. So that's just so infuriating. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it literally changed the fate in the lives of millions of people who have now been lost because of, you know, and I don't even, I mean, still don't understand how the hell George Bush became president because he's just such a stupid human being. And how do we get, like, it just, people want to talk about, you know, places like the DPRK or like China. Or Russia. Or days. Russia, right? I know, they make but, up like so much crap. Like, I have to keep telling people, like, none of this is true. You're like, they're like thousands of people are running. And I'm like, no, I'm right here near the border. And like, I'm here in St. Petersburg. You cannot run to anywhere without like me if there are thousands and thousands we'd see them like no none of this is happening none of this is true but they love making up crap they love they love it and they don't think any other place in the world is democratic when america is not i mean if you have the george bush senior and then his son becomes president and you have all of these people like you know you have uh, the clintons and you have all of these people who are related in some way who are continuing this like line of the presidency or who all go to the same Harvard, Yale and Stanford, right? That's those are the three schools that most of the elites go to. Right. So you have the, the, the people like they they all go to those schools, like the Supreme court, you don't have any Supreme court justices that went to any school outside of that. Right. Like they all went to the same school and now you have Coney Barrett who went to Notre Dame because, you know, she's super right wing and she's young and, and it's all about, you know, opportunity. But before that, like you had none who were outside of those schools, right? So you have how incestuous that is. But people want to say places like, you know, Russia, China, the DPRK aren't democratic or they have. Oh, okay. In Russia, most people don't even know who Vladimir Vladimirovich's children are because they're like so anonymous. And like, you don't see that kind of incestuous, no matter what you might say, like there isn't that kind of incest. Okay. Yes. You have the same people there for like 30 years, maybe. But then mm-hmm. like after he dies, it's not like he's going to be president. His children are not going to be president. It'll be somebody else, like maybe Ramzan Kadyrov or who knows. And you have people who are actually voting like this is what they this is what the people actually want in these places. So people will think like like it's dynastic. Yes, because there's a different culture here and people like don't it's just they have different requirements. So I know for a fact that Putin's children are not going to be in politics just because of the way the culture works, but they value experience and wisdom and age here. So that's why they keep electing him. You know what I mean? Right. And in places like China, you can't even get to be at the top leadership without years of experience of managing millions and millions of people. I mean, they're 
They have a very merit based system in America. You can just be a talk show host and become president one day just because, you know, you don't like what's going on and you don't have to have any qualifications or you can be a guy who went to one of the HYS and but failed out of Yale with nothing but C's and become president, even though you can't really speak eloquently and you don't know words, um, but you can still become president. You can, you would never have a, have that happen in a place like China um, because they actually you have to actually have governing experience and you have to have it built up over time so that you really know what you're doing because so that government can run efficiently and effectively um, for the people. Well, like I said, here in Russia, I see a lot of ways where uh, the government works pretty well. I can give you a well, so in China, I'm sure it even works even better. And like I said, it's like based on an old system that's been around for thousands of years and 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 it's a different culture and they value different things. So like Americans are, have such a hard time putting themselves into shoes of like these like here in Russia, anything is like 2000, like any random building. It's like, oh, this is 2000 years old. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. In America, like if it's 200 years old, it's an old building but here if it's like fair like people are like oh yeah this is new it was built at the time of like i don't know czar alexander right, you have a continuation of like history and culture over thousands of years exactly in america you got you know it's 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 very you know in its infancy i guess in terms of you know statehood in, in comparison and china is older than russia so it, like if russia is about 2000 years old china's 5000 years old yeah 5000 yeah which is just incredible right you have the same history culture language that has gone throughout all of that time and i mean that's incredible really in that and it shows through how things are governed in america i mean things are I mean, just you look at the response to COVID, right? You it's like, oh, every state can do something different. Every state's doing this, some state doing that. Some it just it's a hodgepodge, it's a mess, and none of it makes sense, and none of it is consistent, right? And that's how you have millions of COVID deaths and twenty five hundred deaths a week, and then China only has you know somewhere five thousand something in the whole time in a year, right? And I guess another thing I notice, at least with the Chinese government, is that everything they do is like they don't rush into judgment or decisions. They take their time and then it, it takes a while. So it's like they observe, look at what's going on. And then only after they gather all that information, do they form a decision. Like here in the U.S., it's like so many decisions, decision. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, because you have because <laughs> they don't really like you have, you know, lobbyists who write the bills. Um, I worked in D.C. for a while and, you know, we actually met, like met with a lobbyist and like he told us how like things get done and all this stuff. This is like way back when I was in college. And I was just so like surprised. Was, like, Oh, these guys just they write the bills and then pass them out. And like, <laughs> no, uh, yeah, well, it, it kind of happened where my firm, that's kind of why I left law is because my firm put me into it's it's a fancy word. It's called government relations, but that's not really what it is. It's not government relations. It's you go write a bell, and then you just you tell you like, and then they just implement whatever crap you write. And it was a really disgusting work. And I was like, okay, I don't want to do this. So then I decided maybe I should go into teaching. And I applied for a fellowship in Australia. I got it, and I was like, sayonara, bye bye, so long. It was like half the money, but it was worth it because. I did not feel disgusting about myself. 
Yeah. I, I mean, that's what it, like a lot of these big firms, I mean, that's why a lot of people leave it, right? You're doing, I mean, that's why they have to pay you so much money, right? So that you don't, you just look past all of that because I mean, it's not every, you know, like some firms you can do things that aren't, you know, morally reprehensible. Like sometimes you're just, you know, two businesses fighting against each other. Like who gives a shit, you know, like who cares? Like it's not that big of a deal. Apple versus some patent troll. I really don't care because they're both like billion dollar businesses and who cares? <laughs> exactly. But when you get into things like, you know, where you're defending, you know, Johnson and Johnson against cancer survivors, that's totally different that you have to be sort of a reprehensible person to defend, you know, that kind of criminal activity where company like Johnson Johnson, I mean, they knowingly poison people, knowingly do these things and they make the calculation that you know what the, instead of fixing this problem it's they'll take the hit exactly so even the, even if they know people are going to die they're like well it'll be cheaper to just pay whatever the fine is instead of like dealing with fixing the problem because it's going to spend so much money it's going too much money to do this so we'll let people die and that kind of thing is you know that's why we should bring back the death penalty for corporations i think and so a lot of them should be done just like that you spoke about BMW. I just wanted to explain that it's literally owned by Joseph Goebbels's like grandkids. <laughs> See, I didn't even know that. That's that's crazy. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, like a few years ago, they were complaining about how life is so hard for a billionaire. So Joseph Goebbels had uh, had a wife, I forget, Magda. She had uh, maybe step grand. I don't even care. Okay, on that day in like the bunker, Magda killed everyone except their eldest son who then survived and formed BMW, or at least inherited BMW, and his kids now own the BMW. So I'm like, okay, if you do the Holocaust, you should be done as a company, in my opinion. Right. Like, they should be lucky to even be alive. Like, they should feel lucky to be to, to be living, breathing air outside of a prison somewhere. And, uh, yeah, I, I, a few years ago, about two years ago, I wrote an article about all the companies that some of the companies, not all of them, I could not. Some of the companies that required that deserve the corporate death penalty and Bayer, IG Farben. Oh my God. Yeah. That definitely isn't, it should be on the top of the list. Yes. I mean, them, um, Dow Chemical. Um, I mean, I mean, there are, there are so many. I mean, a lot of the energy companies, even the, like the energy companies out west, I forgot what the energy company is in California that kept cutting off power and people were dying because they, you know, their life support systems or dialysis, things like that, they couldn't get to. Oh my God, that's this guy. Well, I do remember Enron had this tape where they wanted, they were cheering on a forest fire. They were like, burn, baby, burn, because it's going to make some stock go up. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the thing. Like, as long as the line goes up, people are okay with, I mean, and it's, I mean, I, that's sort of like the depravity of, you know, like capitalism in America, right? Is that as long as people are okay with, you know, mass murder and death is so long as they can make money off of it. So you'll see like people, you know, wars are happening and they're like, oh man, now I have to buy some Lockheed Martin stock because like they're going to be sending missiles to go and kill people. It's like, the government's going to give them all this money. It's like, yeah, that makes you sort of a terrible person. Well, the other side of it is uh, here in, well, in, when I was in Lugansk, I interviewed this old man who was a guest, no, no, I'm sorry, he was an auto mechanic and he was telling me the story. So basically the Heimer hit the gas station and he said, oh, I was with five friends and then I looked like we were fixing some old car and then I looked over and three of them were gone and I did not understand what he meant by three of them were gone. 
And then it took me, and then he pointed to the gas station that did not, ex- sorry, not the gas station, but the car shop that did not exist anymore. And I was like, oh, I was shocked um, because he was like, but you see, this part does not make it to the news. because, And so people don't understand what the cost of like selling the weapon to Ukraine or whatever horrible uh, terrorist organization you have. So it's like a double-edged sword where people don't understand the consequences because these people don't make it to the news. You only get like fake, I don't know, whatever, like incubator babies or fakeness. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword where they both don't understand what's going on and they can't see what's going on, right? Right. And then like you still have like the sort of bloodlust too, where it's like you have all these things mixed in one where... And it's all, you know, sort of media driven where they allow people to create the fantasy that people live in as opposed to living in, in the reality of what's actually going on. That's why, like, the anti-war movement has sort of been, you know, weakened because people aren't actually seeing what's happening anymore. They're only they're, they're only being told what the warmongers and the 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 the, the weapons manufacturers want people to see. Always foreign and, and always like the, the they always paint Like the enemy is always in a foreign country far away. It's not your enemy. So you can't really fight it even. Like, are you really going to be able to come to Siberia to fight this imaginary enemy? No. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. It's always, yeah. These, and, and it's always, it's always too scaremongering. Everyone is like, oh man, they're going to come over here. Like that's, you know, they, they always said, you know, I can't remember politics was, it was like, we have to fight Russia over there. So we don't have to fight them uh, on the beaches over here. And they said the same thing in Vietnam. So we want to fight Vietnam over there. So we don't fight them over here. We're going to fight them in Iraq over there. So we don't fight them over here. And it's like, what? How the bleep is Vietnam? Like, which back then was mostly like illiterate farmers going to come over here to like, it makes no sense. None at all. But it doesn't matter, right? As long as they can get the will of the people behind going and murdering some brown people, then that's all that matters, right? It, 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 the truth doesn't matter. It's what they can get people to get behind and what they can make them believe. And I mean, and the thing, the funny thing is, you know, they went over to Vietnam and still got washed. They got crushed over there and had to leave because. You know, people were actually fighting for something. You had people, you know, uh, American soldiers who were just sent over there. They they didn't know what they, they they're not fighting for anything. You know, they're just over there, and then they're all on heroin and you know all of these things. And yeah, so they're not actually fighting for anything. And a lot of times, people get over there and realize, oh, we're not fighting for anything. Yeah, that's so why you had some black soldiers who literally. You know, flip to the other side. I know you've spoken about this before. You know, they change allegiances because they were like, oh, this is, they're fighting, they actually have a noble cause, right? And even yeah. in Vietnam, they, you know, they would say, hey, black folks, we are, we're fighting against the same thing you're fighting against. We're fighting against white supremacy. Like, we're not trying to, you know, we don't have any problems with you guys. We're not trying to fight, hurt you, the, your government who's trying to do these things to us. And, you know, we just want to be left alone, right? And yeah. Well, one of my favorite posters is, okay, well, there's two actually that's really cool one of my favorite posters is from the korean war so in korea i hear it like it gets very very cold so the poster korea like korea says something like why do you want to be here in the cold while your wife is alone at home <laughs> lonely and who knows what kind of men come will come over so that was a very effective poster <laughs> and then the second one was um we're basically they're like okay we support like look at all like the african countries that support us here in korea and yeah uh, why would you want to why are you fighting on behalf of racists and actually like those posters were effective enough that they integrated the army in during the korean war (laughs) 
Wow. Yeah, because all this all this stuff was true, right? And that's part of, especially a big part of like history that you know is never really told or um, discussed in school, right? It's always everything you get in you know like public popular education is that you know we were going and doing all these good things and you know blah 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 blah, right? You get all of that, but yeah, you never get the ears for beers. Like they sold, like, like they literally like gave soldiers beers for each ear they cut off in Vietnam, right? And, and, and all of the like rape and and exploitation of women that happened to be died. That is something that is like so just not even talked about at all. I mean, I, there's old guys like that, that I would hear talk about how like when they were in Vietnam, how they ran whorehouses and things like. I mean, there was so much of that going on, and the quote unquote. Whore was probably 12 years old, right? Exactly, right? You had all of that, like, you know, just just insane things happening, but and no one was ever, you know, held accountable for any of these things. And it's not talked about, it's not discussed, and a lot of it's just, you know, brushed under the rug as the price of, you know, doing business or just, you know, part of, you know, U.S. imperialism, which is, you know, the exploitation that happens every time they go to war somewhere and, and, and occupy someone's nation. Yeah, I mean, the like for me, I've looked at a lot of it, and it's always the same pattern. It's always horrendous, disgusting. Like I, it is just overwhelmingly just. It's hard to explain, put words into the evil nature of it. And what you get is like a lot of mostly okay. So this is the thing with the war, with the proxy war with Russia, is that the U.S. has never fought a war with the equals. They've always fought wars with illiterate peasants against their like big bombs iraq afghanistan um even vietnam and korea was not equals so here with russia it's kind of i mean it's obviously not fully equal but it's kind of like an army that can a nuclear army that can defend itself and fight and this is why the war is not going like what the way the u.s planned because the u.s has never fought a war with equals right russia's a technologically advanced you know army and i mean i don't think they've they're even deploying like their like advanced weaponry i mean it's sort of like just some of the more standard some of the older stuff some of the more you know standard like they're i guess more advanced and newer newer stuff hasn't really even been deployed so it's interesting because i don't like i don't think america really wants to fight a war against someone who can actually give air support and you know do all these things because then it's even fight and you're not going to just go and steam over you know a country you can't you're not just going to go and bomb them to to dust like they did in you know iraq iran or in afghanistan or any of these places they're not gonna be able to just go and steamroll places because you can't do you won't be able to do that in russia you won't be able to do that against china because these these places they have modernized armies they have you know weaponry that matches ours so yeah it would behoove them to you know take a step back and and, and think about it but the imperialists don't care they they want what they want and i think that's what, kind of what we're headed like toward is that America is going to have a confrontation with one of these countries where it's going to be is going to be like, especially if like they, they try to uh, undermine the, the the domination of the uh, U.S. dollar. Uh, well, I mean, a lot. I mean, that's basically what Russia is doing right now for uh, undermine. I mean, so what happened is that they are basically telling people that they have to buy um, oil in rubles. And with India, for example, they have a, a deal with like 50-50 rupees or, or rubles. Like, so they are going, they are undermining the U.S. dollar. And the thing is that 
everything I've read from defense contractors and all the horrible trade journals is that the U.S. kind of was hoping that this war with Ukraine would be over in like five months or whatever so that they could switch gears to Taiwan. And Taiwan's going to be harder because with Ukraine, at least there's Poland where they can like refuel and send more weapons infinite amount. But with Taiwan, it's an island. So they only have like one weapon drop before China blockades everything. Right. And that's why they were trying to like stop the Solomon Islands from make, making a deal. And why they're trying to like, you know, claim the South China Sea. Like what? Like, <laughs> what is, like They're messing with you in the South China? Like, why are you over there? Like, how are you being provoked? And you're in the South China, the South China Sea, like, and you're flying planes over China, you know, trying to, you know, provoke them and sending Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. Like, who's provoking who really? Yeah, but the thing is that that's the thing with like they they it looks like they all the neocons want the war with Taiwan, but that's even a dumber idea than the war with Ukraine because you have one weapons drop and that's it that's still all over. It's like they're gonna get more and more desperate as time goes on, and I'm really scared because it, it's like no one's really thinking about it. or or maybe they are they don't care maybe they think they're gonna win a nuclear con God knows what they're thinking. And uh, you could really see the private like that they probably do think. I think there was like a something that came out recently about how the nuclear strike or a limited nuclear war that America could win a limited nuclear war or whatever it the the, the verbiage was, but that they could win it. And it's like, well, no one really wins a nuclear war, right? Um, and with Biden being in office now, you know, he's full on, you know whatever the, the warmongers want, that's what he's, you know, he gets behind that. And I guess that's the difference between him and Donald Trump. Donald Trump was, you know, very much different. Like, okay, yeah, he would, he, he also liked war, but he's like, I don't want to go to war over here. I'd rather do it over here, right? Well, I think Donald Trump had some, like, he prized himself on making deals. So he had some good instincts when it came with North Korea, for example, right. trying to negotiate. So Biden has no instincts because I don't even know who his like which staffer is in charge of anything with Trump, you know, like who's in charge and you kind of understood like his staff structure and who's the neocon psycho who's like with Biden. I can't even tell which staffer is speaking to whom. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I think the other thing, too, is like, I mean, even I think even back, like, I remember back in the um in, in the election and I think it was a. Uh, I can't remember who it was. Um, oh, Cash, Julian Castro or. Uh, the other Castro brother, uh, who's a Democratic politician. Not Fidel, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> not even close. Um, but they were they they asked him all a question. At, Joaquin. Yeah, they asked him a question at the end of the, the debate, and they were like, "Who's you know who's the what's the biggest threat to America?" And he was like, "China." And I was just like so jarred by that because it's like, well, one. No one's really a threat to America. Like, who's a threat to American capitalist interests? Sure. But threat to, like, no one's threatening America. Uh, no yeah. one has military bases everywhere. But it, it, it sort of was funny because it's like they're setting the stage because they want to have a conversation. Democrats seem to be more hawkish now than, I mean, than ever. I think that's pretty clear, even more so than, you know, your conservatives who, you know, Typically, they're cheering on every war, but they they'd rather not go to war. They don't support as much the war in Ukraine, but it's not out of principle position. It's more so out of ideological concerns or whatever. Um, they want to basically switch gears to Taiwan is where, where right. like that's what I get, and that's like a 
that's why they don't quite, they're kind of asking people to like, I guess, negotiate in Ukraine. So it's not out of principles. It's just they want to change the direction. It's not like they want to stop the ship. They just want to change the direction it's moving. Right. It's not like they're actually against war as it is. They're just against what's happening there. They'd rather go to war. Like they're okay with, you know, dropping bombs in, you know, Iraq and Iran. And, you know, they're okay with Syria, what's happening in Syria. Um, but they really would like to go to war with China because for some reason, you know, they're afraid that China is going to be a, you know, a world. They don't want another, a non-white, non-Western power to uh, come to the fore who can help other countries become independent of, you know, imperialist nations. Well, China's already been doing that with the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, uh, one example is Kazakhstan. Uh, Kazakhstan became independent enough for the U.S. to want to coup it earlier this year. <laughs> yeah. And it's really funny how the, Tokuyev was called President Tokuyev until the U.S. wanted to coup him. And suddenly they called him like authoritarian strongman. And it's like he has not even been in power for a year. Like, and he won an election fair and square. What the hell are you snow starting? Yep. This was just me. Every time somebody is being castigated as an authoritarian or strong, because I mean, they use the same playbook every time. And if you just recognize the pattern, you can recognize and you can smell it out. You can sniff it out as soon as it's happening. You know, everybody who every time they do the same thing, they they, they say that this nation has a authoritarian dictator, that there's human rights abuses and that, you know, we got to bring them some freedom and democracy and free and fair elections. And that's I mean, it's the same playbook and that is, people just keep falling for it. And I don't I don't know how you continue to fall for the same thing, but but they do. Yep. And thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Can you quickly tell people where to find you? Um, sure. Um, mostly, um, uh, you know, you can find me tweeting on Twitter at Dilly Holiday. It's um, Dilly with an I-E, not a Y. But yeah, mostly you can find me on there. So yeah, stop by. Yep. And it was, been, it was great, great talking. Glad to, um, happy to, you know, finally get to have a conversation with you. It was really fun and enlightening because you're like almost like an encyclopedia of legal knowledge. So thank you so much. Yeah, I think the same about you as well. Okay, well, thank you. And come again. We, we need to do this more often. Oh, for sure. Most definitely. Most definitely. Well, enjoy the, the rest of your night and uh, talk to you again soon. Yep. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.